would ask you if you're if you have your Bibles, please to turn with me to uh, James chapter four. Continuing our study in the book of James. And this morning, um, as we read from James, we'll be reading the first uh, ten verses of James chapter 4. Let me remind you that uh, the Bible is God's Word. It's, uh, he used men to uh, sit down and write with their own styles and their, and their own words, but by the power of His Spirit, He used those words and He guided them so that it is His Word as well, and it is inspired and inerrant and infallible. And uh, so as we read from this, we're hearing God speak to us. And so I would ask you, if you're able, please, out of honor and respect for God and His Word, to stand with me as we read from James chapter 4, the first ten verses. <clears throat> what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that the Spirit had, He uh, caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let me remind you just a little bit as we're uh, continuing to study the book of James. It's probably, uh, quite possibly, the earliest of all of the New Testament. Uh, books and uh, James is writing um, not to instruct us of how to become a Christian or he's not even talking so much uh, theology about our, our salvation and how it is that we become a Christian but he is talking to those who are believers and he's calling them brothers and he's instructing us of what it means to live as a Christian what does it look like to be a Christian and so he's been talking to us uh, about uh, several different aspects of what it means to be a, a Christian. He talks about how we live as Christians in the middle of uh, trials and temptations. He says that uh, um, as Christians we should not be showing favoritism. Um, as Christians we ought to be able to tame our tongue. He's talked about as Christians how we, uh, how we uh, think about our money and those sorts of things. And so this morning he is continuing on in that same vein. He's saying, as a Christian, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? How does it look 
uh, for you to be a Christian. And in particular, in this passage, I think he's talking about, as Christians, how do we relate with one another within the church? Um, what does it mean to be a Christian within the church? How, do, how does it look? What does it look like? And, um, and so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. I, uh, I, I've had some very... Uh, difficult times in the past with my teeth. I remember the first time I had a toothache. Uh, I was in I was in high school, and it abscessed on a weekend, and it was so painful. Um, the only way I could get relief was to take a piece of ice and put the ice right on the tooth, and it was like the, it was swelling and putting uh, pressure on the nerve, and that would just you know it was like make your hair crawl. It was so painful. And so I didn't get much sleep that weekend. Uh, of course, it had to happen on the weekend. The dentists aren't open, right? So you have to wait till Monday. But uh, I remember calling the school and telling them that I wasn't coming in that day, and the reason was I had a toothache, and they laughed about it. But it was painful. I mean, when that when that tooth hurts, that little such a little part of your body hurts, you can't think of anything else. That's all you can think of. It is demanding of all of your attention when something like that hurts. Well, uh, it, it is that way. When one part of the body rebels, the rest of the body feels the pain. In our text this morning, uh, James is instructing the church, uh, which is the body of Christ, right? He's instructing us how we're to relate to one another. And when one body gets out of sorts, the rest of the body senses these kind of major problems. And he's, he's dealing with some of these things uh, going on. I think we've all seen it in the church at times when uh, individuals wanting to get their way, um, they kind of start demanding that, and we wind up having church splits over these kinds of things. Uh, it's a reason for, for people leaving the church. It doesn't seem like it was that new of a problem because it seems like even James in probably the first letter or the first book of the New Testament is writing about the same sort of situation uh, to those he is uh, uh, talking to here in James in the book of James in, in chapter 4. And James, at this point, he identifies what is the source of this problem, what causes this kind of thing, and then he gives us some solutions about what we need to do about it. And so with that in mind this morning, I want us to look at the, these two main points. So first of all, the source of the problem. And he's going to talk about four different things, which kind of all join together, I think you'll see. And then he's going to give us uh, some solutions, what we need to do about it. And I think there are six things that he mentions to us here that we need to do. So first of all, what causes the fights and quarrels among you? He says, don't they come from your desire to battle with uh, that battle within you? And then down in verse 3, um, we see, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, it's interesting here that in, in verse 1, the word for desire in Greek is the same word in verse 3 that uh, is pleasures. It's the same word. It's uh, the Greek word uh, hedon, uh, from which we get hedonism. You may be familiar with the word hedonism or hedonist, uh, someone who's just always living for their own pleasure in life. And so this is, this is what uh, James is saying here. You're living a life 
with a desire for pleasure. That's your main goal in life is to be pleased and to be comfortable and to be just everything for me. And, well, it seems that if that was the case in those days, how much more today in our day, especially in the United States and even within the church, we're continually in pursuit of our passions and pleasures. Um, one pastor has said this about it. He says, pleasure in and of itself is not bad. It's only bad when it becomes an overriding priority. Such pleasures can easily get out of hand so that they declare open war on our souls. James said that these pleasures wage war in your members. There's war going on. The battleground is inside you. And, make, and to make matters worse, it does not stay inside you. It spills out and it results into outward conflicts. What is the opposite of making your pleasure a priority? It's in making the needs of others a priority. It's in humility of mind in which you do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but look for the interests of others. It's that outlook wherein you regard one another as more important than yourself. James is saying what you're looking for is life. It's all about your pleasure. And if you want to do that, that, that is a problem if you're just living for your own pleasure and desires. Second thing we notice in verse 2. He says, uh, you want something and you don't get it and you kill and covet, uh, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight and you do not have because you do not ask God. Wanting what we cannot have. This is very similar to living for pleasure, right? If, it's, if, if I'm just living for myself and for my pleasure, there are certain things I want and I think that's what I need to give me pleasure. And we, uh, we're not to, to live that way just for that. Uh, it's not that these Christians were uh, actually committing literal murder. And Jesus said that if you hate your brother and you refuse to give him, uh, to forgive him, you have committed murder within your heart. And why do that? Well, one of the reasons is because you don't have the things that you want. And James gives us two reasons for not having the things that you might want. And the first thing, he says, is because you do not ask God. You do not ask God. Um, well, that's, that's probably right when we look at something that we want just for our pleasure we don't often pray for these things, do we? Although we hear Janis Joplin, I don't know how many of you remember Janis Joplin, the old uh, rock and roll star, sang the song, Oh Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? Right? Just to live in my pleasure. And most of us don't really play that way, or pray that way. Just give me whatever I want for my uh, pleasure. And so certainly uh, it wouldn't be something that we, we would begin asking God with. But we don't always go to prayer as we should. We treat prayer as a last resort. Um, it's like the sign on the parachute harness. I don't know if you've ever heard about this. It's a sign on the parachute harness saying, first pull the primary cord. If that doesn't work, pull the secondary cord. If that doesn't work, pray. Okay. Is, that, is that our way of thinking about things? That's the last resort. We've got to go to prayer. Well, nothing else is working. We might as well go to prayer. But I want to say that uh, 
It is difficult, I think, if you're going to go to prayer to, to pray simply for your own pleasure. We shouldn't be able to do that. And so that's what he says here. Next, he says, um, what you're, when you're wanting what you cannot have, you don't ask God. He's probably right. But when you do, you, you ask wrong because you're asking just to fulfill your own pleasures. Um, just as we wouldn't give our children everything that they might ask us for, uh, as they're growing up, because we know that uh, there's some things that just aren't good for them at that time. And uh, we might think it even best not to always give them everything that, that we might think is okay for them to have. It might make them a little spoiled. I was in the, the store yesterday and uh, saw this man that he was carrying a, a child, um, 18, 18 months, maybe two years old, something like that, carrying him around. I'm thinking, he's got to get tired, being tired of carrying that child. He was pushing the cart as well. And a little while I, I saw him say, he was getting tired of carrying the child. I said, all right, let's, let's get in the cart and try to put him in the little seat for the child. And the child said, no, he starts throwing a fit and kicking and everything. And um, father says, okay, puts him on the other arm. And I'm thinking, that's not a good thing. What are you teaching this child? You're teaching this child that whenever you want, whatever you want, all you have to do is throw a fit for it, and it's not good. That's not a good thing to, to think that this is the way you get things. Um, I, when God doesn't give us everything that we think we might need, it's a good thing, and especially if we're asking amiss. Our prayers aren't necessarily to focus on our pleasure and our wants and, and, those, and, and our desires. Our, our prayers, what are they actually to focus on? Well, we, we prayed it earlier this morning, didn't we, in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then what are we praying for? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that... It's supposed to be the focus of our prayers. To say that, God, what we want more than anything else is for your will to be done and to you to be glorified in all of the earth. How different is that than praying prayers that would focus on just give me something for my pleasure. Let's pray the prayers that say, God, may you be glorified in everything that you do. Isn't this way Jesus prayed, even in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. Maybe that is the way we should be praying. And uh, so first of all, these issues that are going on within the church, um, someone uh, looking first and foremost, a uh, desire for pleasure, and then wanting something that you can't have, and you uh, don't pray for it, and then when you do, you, you pray amiss. That's, that's not supposed to be. A third thing that's causing these problems within the church, we see... In verse 4, he begins with, you adulterous people. Now, we know what adultery is about. We, we know that when we, when we think of adultery, we think of a marriage relationship with one of the spouses goes off on the other one and cheats on them, and we think of that as adultery. But I don't think that James, as he's talking, as, as he's calling them adulterous people here, I don't think his mind is, is, is it with in the marriage relationship of a husband and wife, rather it is more of a uh, being unfaithful to God. Throughout the Old Testament, as we've already mentioned uh, earlier on, even before the call to worship, we mentioned the fact that 
Um, in the Old Testament, Israel is known quite often as God's bride. Even the book of Hosea is all about that, right? Hosea, go out and marry this, this prostitute. You're going to know what it's like for me to um, be married to Israel as a nation who's always uh, being a prostitute and committing adultery against me. And then in the New Testament, we see once again that the, the church, the, the people of God, are the bride of Christ. And how is a bride supposed to act towards her spouse? Isn't she supposed to be adoring, and loving, submissive, and not uh, wandering around on him? John, uh, James goes on um, here when he, when he calls them adulterous people. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Friendship... Uh, signified a deeper and more intimate relationship in James's world than it does in uh, many of our cultures today. Friendship with the world, he's not talking about being friendly with them. He's talking about, um, you're my favorite relationship here. Looking to um, live for the things of the world rather than to live for the things of God. When we do this, it's, he calls it adultery here. He says, you adulterous people. But the real idea is it's idolatry. You're putting something else before God. Something else before the one we're supposed to be most committed to. Putting our pleasure before him. Putting the things of the world before him. Putting friendship with the world before him. Putting good things that God has given us in creation even before him. He's saying, you ought not to do this. Number four, we've seen that uh, the source of the problem is desire for our pleasure, wanting what we cannot have, uh, <clears throat> idolatry, and fourthly, we see in verse six. But he gives more. But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God uh, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, pride is definitely an issue that causes these problems within the church. He uh, quotes from Psalm, uh, or excuse me, from Proverbs 3, verse 34. <clears throat> he said, it is the lack of humility that is one of the causative factors for conflicts within the church today. As we each elevate ourselves within our own minds, it becomes, we become like little gods, each one wanting to be worshipped. <laughs> Tim Keller uh, has written a book about uh, marriage relationships. In this book, uh, a great quote from the book, he says, if two spouses each say, both of them are going to have to do this, okay, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. If I treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have a prospect for a great marriage. How much better in the church if we don't say the, the main problem here is not such and such or, or, or so and so over here, but the main problem is my self-centeredness. And if each of us could get that out and become humble to say, no oh God, uh, you're to be the one glorified, you're to be the one to be worshipped, not me begin to see our pride uh, and we become humble in it. 
Um, this, these are all problems, uh, the source of the problems within the church, the, uh, the, the, the desire for pleasure, the uh, wanting what you cannot have, the idolatry, and, and even the pride that thinks, well, I deserve this and I should have it. Well, that brings us to our second main point. What is the, um, what's the solution for the problems? And I think James mentioned seven things, or six things to us here. First of all, we find in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. The first thing to do is to submit ourselves to God. Um, in submitting to God, we recognize that he is the authority, right? He's the one who has the right to say what we need to do or don't do. First thing we do is submit to God and say, you have total authority over me. I'm fine with that. I want to I live with that, God. So submit to God. God tells us to do something. We don't have to act like... Um, a spoiled child and say why um, when his word tells us to do this we, we just do it say God you're, you created me you should be able to tell me how I'm supposed to live so we submit to God we'll talk a little bit more about what this means and some of the other points here but the second thing he mentions here again in verse 7 submit yourselves to God on one side and then on the other side this would be the second thing resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. Now think back with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And what do you have here? God's given his, his command, free to eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is man going to do? Are you going to submit to God? Or on the other hand, are you going to submit to Satan? And Satan comes and tempts the woman and she takes the fruit and eats it and gives it to the man. So instead of submitting to God and resisting the devil, she resists God and submits to the devil. That's the opposite of what we're supposed to do. Um, now, in resisting Satan, I want you to know it's not something that we can do in our own power. Um, in Acts chapter 19, there's these individuals who go to cast out this demon. They've seen uh, the disciples do cast out some demons and people, and they go thinking they're going to do it, and they confront this individual who has demons, and they uh, try, to, try to resist the devil that way, and the, the person who's demon-possessed beats them up, and they run out uh, naked and bloody and bruised. We don't fight Satan. We don't resist Satan in our own power. We resist Satan power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to each one who's a believer in Christ Jesus. And as Satan comes with the temptations that are uh, there, trying to get us not to submit to the Lord, but to submit to Him, we resist Him in the power of the Lord and the power that He's given us in Christ. Alright, so we submit to the Lord, we resist the devil. Um, the third, in verse 8 here, come near to God and he will come near to you. All right? What does it mean to uh, come near to God? Someone has said you're always moving, either you're move you're always moving, either you're moving towards God or you're moving away from him. What does it mean to move towards God? Well, um, I think certainly a daily going into his word Daily in his word, we're moving towards God. Daily, saying prayers to him, and, and even as Paul says, uh, pray without ceasing, right? Aren't we drawing near to God through that prayer and scripture 
But also worship. I mean, corporate worship is so very important. Um, that's the reason the author of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. That is coming near to God. And that's what we're to do, is to come near to God, not only individually with, with uh, Scripture and prayer, but corporately uh, to worship Him as well. Also, number four in verse eight, come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Telling us, uh, you, know, you know, you need to be living a life that would be pleasing to God, living a life that is in obedience to His law. Now, let me remind you once again, James is not talking about what we would call justification. We have a doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is that God looks at us and He declares us righteous. Not on the basis of our righteousness, because we are not righteous, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. When Christ died on the cross, he took our unrighteousness and paid for it. In exchange for taking our unrighteousness, he gave us Christ's righteousness. So when we stand before God, we are justified. The judge of all the earth looks at us and says, you are just. He looks at me and says, Daryl, you're just. And I go, but, but wait, I, I, remember, I remember when that guy cut me off in traffic and I didn't feel too just right then. I remember when somebody else upset me and I didn't act very righteous. How can you call me just? He says, well, you see, what I've done is I've taken Christ's righteousness and put it in your account. So when I open these law books and any... Uh, any offense that you had had, that's already been paid for. But not only that, the righteousness of Christ has been put in your place. And that's perfect righteousness. That's justification. That's not what James is talking about here. Our standing before God, being justified on the basis of Christ's works imputed to our account, is not what he's talking about here. But he's talking about as a Christian, you need to be living like one. You need to be looking like one. This moves more into the area of sanctification. Sanctification is a process. It's not a one-time event, but it's a process whereby we are becoming more and more uh, conform to the image of Christ. We're looking more and more like him on a daily basis. And James here in saying you need to clean up. That's just there's certain things that just as a believer in Christ, as being adopted into that family, we don't act that way. We don't look that way. And these are the things he's he's saying here. You need to wash your hands, you sinners. Uh, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Start to looking with a mind that's more focused on doing the things that God uh, calls for us to do. Fifthly, fifthly here we see in verse 9, it says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What in the world, James? Have you lost your mind? Is laughter such a bad thing? Do we... Do we not ever want to laugh about anything? Do we not want to have any joy in this life? Well, I don't think that's, that's what James is talking about. He's, he's uh, kind of going back to the Old Testament and the, as the uh, uh, prophets would talk about the day of the Lord coming. And if you had not uh, 
repented of your sins and if you hadn't felt the sorrow for your sins at this time in the day of the Lord when it comes you will feel sorry for it then and there will be mourning and gloom on those days if you haven't dealt with your sin and had a heartfelt sorrow for your sin here today Douglas Moo in his commentary on James says James is no killjoy denying any place for laughter or joy in the Christian life but laughter in the Old Testament and Judaism is often the scornful laughter of the fool who blithely uh, refuses to take sin seriously. It is the mark of the one uh, who uh, prospers in the world without regard to the world to come. For this reason, Jesus warned, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Luke 6, verse 25. Mourning and weeping on the day of God's judgment can be avoided if people mourn and weep for sin now. Jesus also said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is James telling us here? He's talking about repentance and a heartfelt sorrow for our sin. Looking to, to God with hearts that are broken and asking that, that we would be forgiven and a desire to change those things, that we would grieve and mourn for our sins. Where are you with this? Have you grieved for your sins? I mean, even as a Christian, do you, do you grieve? The fact that you do things that you know are not becoming of a Christian, that you do things that you know are breaking God's law. You, do you mourn that? Does it, does it harm your heart? James is telling us that this is, this is the way we should be thinking about our own sinfulness. And finally, sixthly here, and finally, we see in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humility is not an easy thing, especially for those of us who are full of pride, self-centeredness, right? I'm the one that needs to be lifted up. But we're told to humble ourselves. I want you to know, if we truly come into the presence of God and we see who he is, the light of that shines on us and we are recognizing that we are in need of forgiveness and that we must come humbly. You think of Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah, the probably the most, if anyone in, in Israel would have looked at him, they go, that's a righteous man. The most righteous man in Israel. And he is taken up into the presence of the Lord. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up and seated on the throne um, with the train of the Lord's temple, filling the, filling the temple, the door frames shaking in the presence of the Lord. Angels flying back and forth, calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what is his reaction? Does he join right in and go, this is wonderful, this is the greatest praise service I've ever been in? No, he falls on his knees in humility and he does something quite amazing. A woe is a condemnation. A woe is a pronouncement of, of damnation on the one receiving it. And Isaiah at this point falls on his knees and does what is unique to Isaiah in this passage 
It's not done anywhere else in Scripture, an individual pronouncing a woe on himself. He says, woe to me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What is he doing in the presence of the Lord? He is humbling himself, is he not? Recognizing his own sinfulness and the, and the fact that this is, this is not a comfortable place to be in the presence of the Lord like this. He is humbling himself. What happens when, when he says this? Doesn't the Lord lift him up? Takes, uh, 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 an angel goes over and takes some tongs from the, from the fire, uh, takes some, uh, an ember from the fire and with some tongs and, takes, and touches his lips and they're cauterized. And then he says... Uh, who will go for me? Isaiah humbled himself. The Lord lifted him up. In Philippians chapter 2, we have a great passage on Christ and that, your, your the Christology, your doctrine of Christ, who he is and what he's done. We see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that we're to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, right? What was his attitude? Well, even though he was the very image of God, the icon, the God himself, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on human flesh, taking on the form of a bondservant, and becoming obedient even to death. This is what Christ did. Anyone who, I mean, Christ the creator of the universe, did he have, not have the right and the authority to stand up with his pride and say, look at me. And all. But yet when he comes, he, he comes and he humbles himself. And as you go on in Philippians chapter 2, what happens after he has humbled himself and become obedient even to the point of death, God lifts him up and gives him the name, the name that is higher than any other name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are to have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, to humble ourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Don't come to the Lord saying, Lord, I deserve better than this. Why aren't you giving me better? Why aren't you giving me all the things I want here? We humble ourselves before the Lord and say, this is what you've given me. When we begin to do this and we begin to think this way and begin to act this way and live this way, uh, things begin to change in the church. If every one of us as in, as in a good marriage relationship we begin to recognize that our own self-centeredness is the major problem in this, if we each one do that in the church, how different things are. How different things are. There are no longer these things that he mentions in, in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come up from your desires of battle within you? You want something, you don't get it, you kill and you covet, but you cannot have. See, when we have our minds and our attitudes right about who we are in relationship to God and what we are actually created to do in glorifying Him, lifting Him up, Humbling ourselves, repenting of our sins, cleaning ourselves up, coming near to Him. These kinds of things begin to disappear. And we begin to see a church that is truly mature and built up. And we begin to see that we as Christians are living as Christians should live. Um, living as a child of God. Living as an adopted child of His. And He deserves 
this type of attitude and this type of behavior for him. Well, hopefully you will contemplate these things throughout the rest of this day, throughout this week, and you begin to see your lives being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, looking like him, living like him. And we begin to see as that happens, these things disappearing from within the church. Let's pray. Father, again, as we look at your word, we, we rejoice in knowing that you haven't left us to guess um, what your will is for us. Uh, you've shown it to us quite clearly. Lord, we confess this morning that even as your children, we so often idolize ourselves. We, we desire our own pleasures more than we desire you. We desire the good... Good things that you give us in creation more than we desire you. We think that uh, somehow we deserve better. And Lord, what we should be doing is looking to you and glorifying you and submitting to you, coming humbly before you, seeking you, coming to you, re repenting of our sins. Lord, as we think on these things this week, would you bring conviction where that's necessary? Holy Spirit, would you change our lives that we might truly be living lives that would bring honor and glory to our Lord Jesus and that your church would be built up as a result. And we pray in his name. Amen. Number 585, take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moment and my day, let them flow in ceaseless pray. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hand and let them impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee, filled with messages from Thee. Take my silver and my gold, not of my wood I will hold. Take my intellect and you every power and thou should choose every power as thou should choose. Now 
receive the Lord's benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Oh.